Hello, it's Paul Scott here again for part two of my podcast on this historic, memorable day, 6th of May 2023, with Prince Charles uh, becoming King Charles III in the background on my television. Uh, but they're going through the bit of the... Um, they're doing the religious mumbo-jumbo, so I'm happy to mute it and uh, dedicate myself to a life of serving the podcasting community. Um here. So, yes, Paul Scott, small caps con- commentator, and I write the Stockopedia small cap value reports with Graham Neary, as you know. So this part two is just some things I've jotted down on my pad during the week that I thought were of interest. Uh, yes, that's working. Sorry, I struggle with the pause feature. So pub closures, um, 4,600 licensed premises closed um, in year-ending... 4,600, that's a lot, isn't it? Licensed premises closed in the year ending March 2023. Uh, 4.3% of the sector closed down, mainly independents. Um, now, I've made the point here that obviously lead, leaves more market share for everyone else. So we are looking at a thinning out of the hospitality sector, aren't we? Um, and that's just um, seems to be an ongoing... Uh, ongoing thing. Also, the the pubs, um, because of course, licensed venues includes restaurants as well, doesn't it? Uh, there were f- as a five point nine percent drop in independence uh, units, but one point five percent growth in managed groups. So it looks like the big players are mopping up market share, and the independents, I'm afraid, pubs and restaurants are going by the board. 7.8% drop in restaurants, so that is a big drop, isn't it? So more money to go around for the uh, for the survivors. Nightclubs are down 30% since uh, March 2020, so well, that's going to give an awful a lot more business to be had to... One of my holdings, Revolution Bars. And they're not actually nightclubs, but they are late-night bars. Um, I'm I'm hoping that one might actually turn out to be all right. Uh, and the bid price did, on Revolution Bars, I hold that personally, I should add, the bid price did tick up slightly on Friday, which uh, so at least there's a bid in the market, which there hasn't been for a while. Uh, oh, and Green King, sticking with the pub companies, Green King put out uh, a more upbeat... Uh, trading update. They're not listed, but uh, quite a, a big uh, player in the in the hospitality sector. Sounded more uh, upbeat about things. So I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if we get some very nice recoveries and bounces in pub and um, bar groups, maybe hospitality companies, uh, you know, maybe the restaurant groups as well, I think could uh, could surprise on the upside, actually, but we'll see. The government's apparently looking at bringing back help to buy, so that has helped the House Builders firm up, as I mentioned in the other podcast. And, oh, there was some positive data on house prices as well. Apparently they rose in April slightly um, after seven or eight months of decline, so that's quite interesting, isn't it? There was also a report from the Small Business uh, Organisation I haven't written it down, but small business confidence bounced strongly, although from a very low level. So I think the PMIs came out this week and were quite good as well, or well, bad, but but on an improving trend. So it does seem to me that we're just getting increasing evidence that the UK economy um, seems to be um, actually in recovery phase. 
you know, the, the journalists constantly want to tell us that everything's doom and gloom. I don't, I don't see that. All these snippets I'm picking up on forward-looking, um, forward-looking economic commentaries are are are, pre- are pretty reassuring, actually. If anything, yeah, I think share prices now um, have baked in higher inflation and squeezed margins. I think you know, the companies I'm looking at generally now, that's all in the price, and the prices are bombed out. So I think we should really be focusing now, looking forwards, on margin recovery. What you're going to see, and what normally happens in sudden sharp economic downturns, is that in some sectors profits collapse, but you then see those margins gradually being rebuilt. It's usually a multi-year recovery, uh, it's not, you know, a V-shaped thing where suddenly they go from a 5% net margin down to zero and then back up to five. It'll be one, one and a half, two. You know, it's that sort of uh, recovery, I think. And it's only a matter of time. And I think we could be on the cusp of this where investors start seeing the glass half full and not half empty. So it does feel to me like, although conditions are still very bearish in the small caps world, I th- I th- I think we're at a turning point or close to a turning point where this market could turn bullish again. And remember that happens usually quite a few months in advance of um actual proven economic recovery. Uh it it does you know I'm still very bullish just because things are so cheap. I'm looking at dozens and dozens of companies each week where I'm thinking you know, that that is going to be 50 or 100% higher in a couple of years because it's a good business. And once they've rebuilt their margins a bit, you know, I think I think we're just, as I said in the other part of this, I think we're just absolutely awash with bargains at the moment, selectively. Uh, the Fed rose rates again. I think I'm really un- uneasy about this. I think they're, 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 they're raising far too aggressively. And there's no democratic accountability for these central banks. I think we should really be asking, you know, they're making such enormously uh, important decisions. Surely there should be some a better uh, um, accountability for all of this. Uh, it does make me, although apparently reading some, some websites, it sounds like the Fed is pretty much done now raising rates. So I'm wondering if this could be a good time to lock in some higher yields on fixed interest. You know, if we get to a point where the Fed's uh, re- reducing interest rates, maybe later this year or next year, this could be a good time, couldn't it, to lock in um, some fixed interest stuff where you're going to be getting a nice yield that will then look much more attractive when interest rates have gone down and you'll get some capital growth. So that is a bit of a headwind. Oh, it's a big headwind for shares if people just start to say, well, actually, you know, getting a 5 or 6% dividend yield on a share isn't actually particularly attractive because you can get 4 or 5% interest on cash without risking anything. So feels to me like, you know, that that is still a significant headwind. Sterling strength is noteworthy. I see it's now, it's continued rising to $1.25.7 against the pound. I mean, what an incredible rebound from the low point at the mini budget. I think it was about 104 or 105. And it's come up to 125, almost 126 now. Um, Generally, the, the stronger the pound is against the dollar, that's good for UK inflation. It keeps inflation down, but you've obviously got your your time lag while uh, hedges uh, are set to run. But um, pretty encouraging stuff on that front, I think. Thinking about strategy then for how the market is at the moment, 
I'm finding with small caps, often you're getting big rebounds on some of these shares, but a lot of these rebounds are not sticking. I think there's a lot of evidence still that people are just banking the profits and moving on when something pops up 20 or 30% after a reassuring update. I also think maybe a good strategy right now is just to sit in cash and wait for the bargains to drop into your lap uh, and then bank, bank the profits on the rebounds. So this, to me, feels like a trader's market where probably the best returns are from adopting that sort of cautious approach. The buy and hold thing, maybe we all need to unlearn that. I'm certainly reading that bloody coffee can book. Um, was a disaster for me personally because I adopted that buy and hold approach right at the wrong point in time when the market was 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 peaking. But there we go. You live in London. Now D listings again, another big big topic we talk about every week. One thing I've um, noticed is that companies when they announce they're going to delist, obviously explain why, and they nearly all say the same things that you know uh, they they seem to blame the market. So they're blaming AIM for not having adequate liquidity, that, you know, it's not providing them with access to capital. But what occurs to me is uh, none of these companies and management seem to actually take their share of the responsibility for the fact that their share price is bombed out because their businesses perform badly, you know, and the market doesn't want to give them another round of refinancing because they've squandered all the money they've raised in previous refinancings. So maybe companies need to take more responsibility for their lowly share prices themselves. It's their mistakes that have caused um, share prices to to be this low and for for not to be much interest in the the shares. And I think all too easy, they use these sort of uh, market factors as a way to justify shafting the small shareholders and just delisting it. And many of us are then forced sellers. Uh, I don't like it. I think companies should take responsibility for uh, their share price languishing and actually uh, pull the finger out of their asses and get on with running the company a bit better. That might help. Talking of refinancings, actually, that brings me on to Mothercare. Graham looked at this MTC. He flagged up that the cost of its loan that it's propping itself up with is 18% per annum. Um, which really reinforces the fact that companies that are struggling and now finding it difficult and really expensive to um, maintain borrowings. This is for financially distressed companies. Uh, So really, I think that reinforces the fact that for us as investors buying the shares, we really need to steer clear of anything that needs to refinance or that is perceived as high risk and is over a barrel with the with the lenders calling the shots. So it's 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 different. Things have changed. You know, we had 15 years of zero interest rates. So this is really me just reminding you that uh, in a higher interest rate world that we're in now, um, access to um, loan funding is, is, is going to be a lot more, more tricky and more expensive, which means, you know, equity could well be forced to dilute to prop um, the companies up. And we've seen Chromec has done a refinancing, yet another one at a hefty discount. You know, it's just not worth holding these things if you think they're going to need to raise more money because you've got no idea what terms the fundraise will be on. And it can be savage, you know, if investors are not interested in putting in fresh equity. The institutions just name their price and it may be half the current price or even lower in some cases. So we've really got to be careful. Now, what about the banking turmoil? Uh, More U.S. regional banks seem to be under pressure. 
Um, I was reading a commentator online who said there are going to be more bank failures in the U.S. It, it's these, it, they call them regional banks, but um, one of the ones that's just first, was it First Republic or something? I can't remember, but a bank that's just failed in America. Apparently it was the 14th largest U.S. bank. So, you know, this sounds more serious than just being regional banks. And you've obviously got this structural problem, haven't you, where depositors can just whip the money out on a whim. Um, and the bank's banking sector lends long term and can't always generate um, enough cash to meet the, the withdrawal request. So, you know, this is a, a, a perennial problem going back centuries with banks, isn't it? Uh, they, they, they rely on confidence. It feels to me something needs to be done system-wide to basically guarantee deposits for all banks that meet key criteria. I don't think uh, governments can mess around with this. I think they've got to look again at um, bank uh, at guaranteeing the deposits and charge the banks more for that. You know, it's a, it's an implicit government guarantee. They should have to pay more for that. I think they do. I know they do pay for it already, but um, yeah, the, the whole system is, is is highly unsatisfactory still. So maybe this banking turmoil just rumbles on. Um, I don't think it's a reason to panic or pull money out of equities or anything. I, I wouldn't hold shares in banks, for sure, but I never invest in banks anyway. But some people are doing quite well by identifying the, the strong banks that are absorbing the weak ones on uh, sometimes very attractive terms. Uh, so it's, it's, as always when in capitalism, when things become strained, it, it just divides into winners and losers, doesn't it? Now, talking about my own personal uh, uh, banking, I've, I've set up a new limited company recently, just a start-up, nothing exciting. Um, anyway, I'm really finding it difficult to open a, a, a bank account. And my, my existing bank is Barclays. Basically, over a three-month period, they raised all sorts of ridiculous queries, like, where did I get the capital from to start the business? I said to them, it's £2. It's £2 share capital. Where did I get it? You want to know where I got it? I, I found, it was a coin I found down the back of my sofa. Oh, 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 very funny. No laughter from the other end. You know, they are just unbelievable box tickers uh, asking the most ludicrous questions. Then I had to get a letter from my accountants to confirm the place of business. I eventually got that through, submitted it through the online portal. Nothing happened. So six weeks later, I, I chased them up. Basically, they've lost my application, even though it was online. It's disappeared from the whole system. And somebody said to me, well, we've heard Barclays is not, not actually taking any new accounts at all. They're not interested in new, new accounts. And I thought, well, it's beginning to look like that. So I then asked on Twitter, who should I approach? Let me try some of these more modern banks. And s several people said Starling are very good. So anyway, I went ahead, downloaded the app, and I have to say the account opening process for Starling, bear in mind this is for a startup business account, not a personal account. The um, the online process was very, very good, I thought. You know, you take a picture of your driving licence and press a button and that goes. It's all ele electronic. Well, so I was about to put out a tweet saying, oh, Starling seems very good, you know, the whole process is quite easy. Then I get an email back from Starling saying oh, um, we've decided we can't offer you a bank account uh, and we can't explain why. I thought, what? 
It's and and before you ask, no, it's not due to bad credit because it's a, a business account. It's a startup, non hasn't even started trading, um, and I don't have any adverse credit personally. So um, I was really cross about that. I think you know wasted a good hour or two of my time going through the whole thing. So for Starling, I'm afraid it's a massive. <clears throat> they seem to want to cherry pick. Um, I don't know, what they deem to be uh, clients in particular sectors that they want, or, or I don't know. Um, well, um, alarm bells did start to ring when it said, tell us about your business, what type of side hustle is it? And I thought, side hustle? What is all this? But I suppose they're trying to appeal to to millennials, aren't they? But anyway, Starling, from my experience uh, uh, so far, was a complete dud, so that was a waste of time. Now, I, I also, at the same time, opened account, uh, tried to open a business account with Revolut, because I do have an existing card with Revolut that I haven't used for a while, but um, I think it's got about 80p in the account or something. But I wanted to try it out, and it, it was quite good, uh, just, you know, a debit card type thing. Well, anyway, Revolut, um, I've gone through the account opening process and they've sent me a message saying we can finalise the account opening process on a video call next week. They'll talk me through the whole process, they say. So, so far, thumbs up from Revolut. They seem to at least actually want the account, which is a good start, isn't it? So I'll report back on that. Um, But, yeah, something funny's going on with the banking system, isn't it? It seems to be mired in... um, in bureaucracy and inefficiency, really. Anyway, um, oh, now Zane, my favourite charity, the Zimbabwe National Emergency. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the £50,000 that we raised for them in 2021. In particular, one of my friends actually personally put in half of that amount, 25000 himself, which was incredibly generous. So thank you to him. He calls himself Investor on the bulletin boards, uh, top guy. And that was a wonderful, you know, that will have saved lives for sure in Zimbabwe because the conditions there are just horrific and getting worse and worse. Now, anyway, Zane is holding a hybrid conference on the 10th of May. So I know some of you also contribute to Zane. Uh, it needs monthly amounts really rather than one of donations, but everything's obviously helpful. Um, and, uh, yeah, so anyone interested, get in touch with Zane. And the the online conference on 10th of May should be very, very interesting. We get an update on how things are going in Zimbabwe. I believe it's seriously grim over there. And uh, it certainly helps put things in perspective when things are going badly for me. When I think about one of the people I saw when I went out there in 2019 and the lives they lead just literally struggling to to exist you know just to get food to eat is is a struggle um oh feedback on these podcasts Uh, do do leave me some comments but sometimes it's just a wall of silence and i don't know whether you're enjoying them or not (laughs) uh i think that was pretty much it oh stale bulls this is an interesting one i was thinking in 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 respect of hostmore m-o-r-e that read the restaurants thing, the TGI's Friday thing. I, I, what, I, I missed the webinar, but I did see the presentation pack of slides on its website. I think this could be. It's high risk. It's high risk because it's got far too much bank debt. But I think Hostmore could be a recovery share. But the trouble with it is the stale bulls. I, there are going to be so many people holding a significant amounts of shares in Hostmore who just want to get out. I'm doubtful whether the share price can really sustainably recover because the buyers are not buying in sufficient numbers to clear out um, 
the overhang of stale bulls, I think. So I'm biding my time on Hostmore. The other thing from the slide deck that put me off, and generally the slide deck was very good. They said basically we're just going to generate cash now. Uh, we're still cash generative on a pro forma basis, and we're just going to reduce the bank debt. They reckon they can generate 10 million a year free cash flow. Um, that sounds a bit fanciful to me, but you never know. Um, and um, But the trouble was, I think it was slide 11 in the in the pack. Oh, I've got my notes here. Slide, yeah, said we are going to refinance in the summer of this year. So that says to me there could well be a place in coming. Um, I don't want to be in anything where it needs to do a place in. Can't find my notes. Typical. Um... Yeah, so I'm on the fence on Hostmore. I think I'll just, I think I'll just bide my time, keep it on the watch list. Uh, yes, here we are. It was, oh, and the like for likes in the current year, 2023 to date, are um, only flat. And as we've seen with Restaurant Group delivering plus 10%, that means Hostmore is significantly underperforming current trading. Now it did make another really interesting point on utilities. Because of the reduction in um, in the in the expected cost of utilities, um, it's six million pound higher utilities cost. This is energy rather in 2023 versus 2022. But they did think it was going to be uh, eleven million higher, so it's now going to be six million higher. So that's moved strongly in the right direction, hasn't it? And they made a lot of cost savings, though I think that's obvious at branch level, where the staff are pretty frazzled from the branch I go to in Bournemouth. You can see they're understaffed. I think that's true of a lot of um, pubs and restaurants. They just can't afford to fully staff them. So service definitely uh, suffers. And Hostmore says no new stores until 2025. Um, I think the new CEO is doing a good job, but it is in survival mode, fighting to survive. Uh, so I don't know, and it's got 32 million net debt. But as they point out in this slide deck, uh, Hostmore, on a, on a on a EBITDA basis, it's actually quite similar the net debt to Restaurant Group is a much larger competitor. So, and it thinks it can get net down down to 18 and a half million by the end of this year, and then 8.7 million end of 2024. Well, if it achieves that, then Hostmore shares are going to multi-bag. So. It is high risk if something goes wrong, something else goes wrong. You know, it could be a question of whether it can survive or not. Another big issue with Hostmore is obviously it's having to pay the US owners of the brand. Now, it's difficult enough to make money out of restaurants without that factor, but that is a permanent headwind for Hostmore, having to, you know, pay these fees to the US brand owner. I can't remember what the figure is, but it's a percentage of revenue. So it's basically coming straight off the bottom line of what would otherwise be profit if it didn't have to pay the brand owner for the name. And I'm not sure the name is actually worth very much now. TGI Fridays, it's dated, uh, you know, it's it's unhealthy, fatty, salty, sugary food. Um, I don't know. I'm on the fence with Hostmore. I think, it, you know, you could, do, you could do well on it, though, if management manages to do what they are aiming to do. I was listening, final point, I was listening to Warren Buffett, uh, and he refers to earnings yield, not price-earnings ratios. Obviously, earnings yield is the, is the inverse of price-earning ratio. So 
A 20 times PE is 20 over 1. So you flip it round, so it's 1 over divided by 20, which is 5%. So a, so a PE of 20 is an earnings yield of 5%. Now, earnings yield is much more useful than... Uh, than a PE ratio, because you can compare an earnings yield with an interest rate and say, well, I'm getting, I'm paying 20 times PE for this stock. That's a 5% earnings yield. That's slightly more than what base rates are. Do you see what I mean? You can also then work out what the dividend yield is and the dividend cover. So if the dividend yield is 2.5%, then that means your dividend is twice covered. You can just easily work that out from... Earnings yield of 5%, dividend yield of 2.5% means your divvies are twice covered. So I actually think we should bring back the earnings yield. PER has had its day, and I think we should retire it. It's a stupid concept, and earnings yield was better. So let's bring back the earnings yield. I think I might start plugging that in my small cap value reports in future, because it's actually more useful than the PE ratio, and it never should have been abolished. Well, on that rather mercurial point, I think I will um, draw a line under this. Rather flat. I, I'm, I'm just completely distracted by the coronation, I'm afraid. So, <laughs> and how ridiculous it all is. But I, uh, I kind of like it too. So there we go. I hope you're having a nice day and enjoying the long weekend. So I'll wrap it up there. Thanks for listening. Bye.